right, welcome back to the Ottawa studios of Inside My Canoe Head. I hope you're all having a great February wherever you may be. Today we're going to talk about the earthquake that's happened in Syria and Turkey. We're going to talk about lessons that translate directly to you in an area that has nothing to do with earthquakes. So sit back, grab yourself a beverage, let's get at it. All right, listen, I'm a sucker for a good drum beat. I don't think I've ever said this on an episode before, but I grew up, my instrument growing up as a child was percussion. Now, obviously, my mother made the right decision and never got me a full-on drum set for the house, but I love playing percussion. So anytime I can find a really neat uh, tambini or something like that beat, I just love to find it and put it on here. Well, thank you very much for joining us again on this episode of Inside My Canoe Head. Um, I appreciate all the messages we get, uh, continue to sign up for our newsletters at insidemycanoehead.ca or preparednesslabs.ca, depending on your focus, uh, have a look at the blogs we have up there. We aim to put a blog or two up every week on both, send out one newsletter, uh, and be producing as much social media capacity as we can when we're in the middle of a whole bunch of other tasks. But that being said, earthquake, what a horrible horror of an event. And I hope you never have the life experience of having to live through something like that. Uh, I've fortunately, unfortunately been in, seen the aftermath of it, never involved in the incident. I was in Ottawa on an earthquake that happened, uh, I think it was 2010. It, it really wasn't that serious. I mean, it shook the living crap out of me and, and the desk that I was sitting at at work. And it was really funny because I was on the phone with somebody in Edmonton and, and I said to her, I said, listen, yeah, we got to go. We're having an earthquake. And she's laughing. And I'm like, no, seriously, we're having an earthquake. And I'm trying to hold on. My entire desk and cubicle is shaking here. It was really weird. Anyhow, if you've ever seen that, you know exactly what I mean. The smells, the feel, the sense, everything related to such a horrible event, the catastrophic changes to lives, the immediacy of the loss you know, it's one thing if a bunch of people get sick like a pandemic and they go through a fight and a certain percentage recover and a certain percentage have long significant injuries and a certain percentage unfortunately don't make it through the illness. But it is the sudden attitude, the sudden event of an earthquake that is so overwhelming because the loss is so catastrophic, it is so immediate and it is right there in front of you and in a lot of us where it really strikes a nerve is the innocence. Those people who don't have an opportunity to fight back, those people who haven't had the opportunity to live a full and wonderful life, and now they are the victims of this. So the reality of it is, is that these things happen around the world. They will continue to happen. We don't call them natural disasters. Uh, much of the emergency management world is trying to remove that phraseology. And the reason for it is they're not natural disasters. This earthquake did not cause so much death and destruction because it was an earthquake. It caused it because humans have chosen to create societies on top of these faults. And then they've chosen to build structures that are incapable of withstanding the shake and the structures come down and it's the structures that bury and kill people. Very few people are actually killed by an earthquake. Um, 
simply because the, uh, the ground opens up and they get swallowed. Unlike, you know, movies like about catastrophic Mayan calendars and climate change and stuff. But the reality is, is it's landslides that take people out, which I've seen. Uh, but it's usually human structures that come down on top of people um, that cause the, the vast amount of destruction. But the reality, that's the reality of the world. The number two that we reality that's come out of this event it's political stability. If you look at the international response, you have tens of thousands, and I'm dead serious, tens of thousands of international volunteers from dozens of countries, often countries in direct or open conflict with that country, have sent their best and their brightest into rescue. There's, there's literally dozens of countries who have heeded the call to land in Turkey. There's thousands of volunteers. You know, Arab countries in Israel are working side by side to save lives. We've got USAR, um, Urban Search and Rescue. We've got HUSAR, which is heavy urban search and rescue. We've got dog teams. We've got everything coming, except if you're in Syria, because that's not the case in Syria. In Syria, you literally have the Red Cross operating in areas that are in somewhat of government control. And then you have the White Helmet, the famous White Helmet uh, response group who's operating in rebel-held controlled areas. That's it. So you have an absolute abject dichotomy of the same, uh, of an earthquake that happened in two different places similar to each other. You have uh, destruction on both sides of a political border. And then you see the politicization and it's out of reality. There is no stable environment within Syria to deploy international humanitarian aid, right? I've studied this at length throughout my career. You just don't do it because you put humanitarian uh, agencies at high risk. A lot of countries utilize their military as leverage for humanitarian response. You can't drop elements of the uh, U.S. military in Syria um, because it just doesn't work, right? They're not going to be seen as humanitarian organization. They're going to be seen as something different. Then you have to put in a heavy security package. As soon as you start dropping armed uh, soldiers in an area and they're armed to the teeth and defended, and oh, by the way, we're handing out free stuff, it doesn't work. So that being said, the lesson from all of that is to take away, look at your political stability in the country that you live on the face of this earth. And I say this because this podcast is downloaded in at least 44 countries, according to the list that I get. Um, your financial, uh, sorry, your political stability in your country is going to determine the ability of the international community to come in and scale up a response. So specific lessons for you sitting in your happy Western world with your feet up on your couch, drinking your cup of coffee and listening to Inside My Canoe Head. Number one, preparedness is pre-event. Your ability to respond is founded on the decisions you make in calm and peace, which is why here on this podcast and throughout our social media feeds, we talk about the idea of preparedness being a thinking and a planning exercise, not a purchase and acquisition process. The reason being is if you think through issues that you face, things that could happen to you, devise a plan or initial strategy in your head, you're doing it during times of peace and chaos. And this is lesson number two. It's chaos, my friends. It's absolute 
chaos. There is no clear delineation of who is in charge, who is responsible for what. There is a total loss of information flow and what information sources are getting out there simply don't have the big picture and the complete picture because in the times of chaos in the first 48 to 72 hours after a significant disruption, even the government and local news sources are not going to have the full picture. Set yourself up for success. It's a clear mind and a healthy body win the day every day. Your ability to absorb shock and operate in chaos and carry on and execute whatever tasks that you need to do in front of you are very much based on the fact that you've invested in a calm and peaceful mind and you have a reasonably healthy physical body. That gives you the ability to navigate significant additional immediate stress and chaos. It works. They've studied it for hundreds of years through dozens of disasters. And the folks that come out on top, the folks that do the best are people with clarity of mind, which means they generally don't live that stressful of a life and people who are reasonably healthy because you're going to have a significant disruption in your food and water intake. You're going to have an incredible uptake in the amount of psychological stress that you're going to be under. You're going to see, smell, and hear things that are abhorrent and, and horrible and just juxtaposed to how you believe life should operate. Your ability to navigate all of that is set in the preconditions of what you've done pre-event. Your third lesson, state capacity. State capacity is consumed in minutes. If you look at a municipal level, and a prime example here in Canada is, there was a tornado that went through the city of Edmonton, Alberta in the 1980s. And within a matter of minutes, there were over 100 dead and 900 injured. Think about that in a modern city. In the city of Ottawa right now, we're, we have a million uh, people. There's approximately 18 ambulances on the road and available at any one time. Think how fast they're overwhelmed. State capacity gets consumed in mere minutes. Then you're looking at a period of days without assistance. I spent significant time in my military career at various different military units that were called immediate response units, right? 72 hours notice to move is the standard for an immediate response unit in the Canadian Armed Forces, and it's very similar around the country and around the world in different nations, which means that military unit is not leaving its barracks for three days after the event, okay? It's not. It has to, number one, rescue itself if it's been affected in any way, shape, or form. The military just doesn't drive out the front door and see what's going on on the way. Everything is a deliberate, planned operation. They're not coming any quicker. The same as when you're looking for uh, you know, support from neighboring municipalities. If they're affected, they're not coming. Uh, if you're looking from levels uh, support from subnational governments, and neighboring subnational governments, so states or provinces or territories, that are, they're not coming immediately. There is a significant gap in time frame where 
irrespective of the injuries that you have and the need that you and your family faces, there's going to be little to no assistance. State capacity, well-intentioned, incredible people, they want to help, but they are going to be literally overwhelmed in a matter of minutes. Your key to success is lesson number four. It's your community, your social networks, and your social capital. Those bonds and the connections you have with your friends, neighbors, and colleagues is what's going to get you through the day. It's what's going to make this a successful as possible event for you. Because your social networks, if you think about all of the people you know, all the people in your neighborhood, right? It's not just that I know my neighbors, three, five, seven, eight, nine doors up on either side. It's that I now have access through that relationship to their resources. They have access to mine. Every house doesn't need a chainsaw. We need a chainsaw on the street. Every house doesn't need a working radio and a communication system. We need one in the neighborhood. And if you see as a community as a block response effort local people are the first responders and watch what we see now on the video is some really incredible rescues 96 100 hours later even as early as 72 hours you see very well skilled international agencies with the right set of tools rescuing people from the wreckage okay and from the rubble not a problem what you don't haven't really seen is the vast, and the numbers prove it in all the disaster research, the vast majority of people rescued in an earthquake and a rubble and a landslide situation are done so in the first 12 to 24 hours. And that rescue is conducted only and solely by the neighbors, friends, and colleagues, and family who are in the immediate area. That's your first responders. Look around your neighborhood. Get to know the people. It's your best weapon, your best device. It's absolutely free. It's what we talk about in your social capital and building your community around you because it's those people in the houses when you look out your front window and you look down the street. It's those people that are the ones who you can, you're going to have to rely upon uh, in the first couple of days of a significant event of where you leave. And the people in Syria are understanding this. Entire neighborhoods are being devastated. And, and the international assistance is, is still not in some areas affected by the earthquake five days later, even for initial assessments. They're using drones and helicopters to overfly some areas, but they're not even in all the towns yet. And we're in day five after the event, day five or six. So that just explains to you that don't think in a North American or Western European context that the response is going to be any greater simply because you're in Western culture or you're in a more developed part of the world. Please don't sink into that idea that somehow you're going to have faster and better government and community response. And unless you build that community response, good luck to you. So lesson number five, evacuation. And I harp, and I harp on this throughout this, <laughs> this podcast, and I've got a number of episodes last season on evacuation specifically. Listen, everybody prepares 
to ride out life's disasters, significant disruptions, and weird heralds, as I used to call them, uh, at home. Because this is where all your stuff is. This is where everything you have. This is where you're comfortable. This is where you're calm. This is where you find your Zen place. Your home is your castle. So yes, obviously, intelligently, you 97.6% of the time, 19 times out of 20, you intend to ride out whatever's coming your way in your house until you can't, until your house is no longer standing. And I learned really the idea behind preparing for this um, from a very good friend of mine who's been on the podcast before, and he lives in an earthquake zone in southwestern BC. And, you know, he said, you know, I've been to his house. He's got a nice little house, nice little yard, incredible Zen area. I tell you, man, it's just incredible Zen area. Um, but his, his disaster supplies are largely on his property in a place that's not going to get collapsed upon, if you know what I mean. So if his house comes down and becomes unusable, his little block of land where his house is on is usable. He has the skill, he has the necessary capability to continue to live on his property, but maybe not in his house. So evacuation for him, short of liquefaction and a massive tsunami 10 feet tall taking everything out, is to basically live on his property and carry on. But if you have to evacuate, and I say this 10 times out of 10, again, preparedness is about what you do pre-event. Your evacuation destination needs to be predetermined. Like right now, as you're sitting here listening to this awesome podcast at Inside My Canoe Head, you need to know where you're going to evacuate to if your house no longer is available for use. And I just, I don't care why, whether it's an earthquake, hurricane, fire, your idiot neighbor blew up his gas line. Like, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter why your house is not available. Where are you and your family and the people you're responsible for going to go to when your house isn't available anymore? That's your job right now to figure out. It doesn't cost any money. I'm not talking about a credit card at a local motel or a motel 100 miles out because you are going to fight with tens of thousands of people. This needs to be a friend, a family member, a colleague, somebody you've made a reciprocal arrangement with to have each other's evacuation center, a place that you know you can go, you have a primary and an alternate route to get there, and you have a primary and alternate means of transportation, which basically means I used to have a bike here. I've switched it to walking. Um, I've got a place that's 10 kilometers away that I can walk to, and I've got a place 150 kilometers away that I can drive to, right? So I know exactly where I'm going and I know exactly what routes are available to me to get there in the case I have to evacuate my house. Again, peace and calm, these decisions are made. So when the shizzy hits the fizzy and the world goes pear-shaped, I know where I'm going if I can't stay home. Everybody else is running around trying to figure out, they're trying to get on the phone, they're trying to get on the internet to book a hotel room, and a little old Jeff and his family are packed up and headed to our destination in a calm and relaxed, as much as possible, manner, right? Understand, planning ahead of time makes evacuation so much easier. And then you got to remember what you're taking. And I don't want to delve into the world of emergency kits, but remember, I... If I'm going to a place, I don't need to bring 
21 days worth of food because there's food at the destination. The destination that I have for evacuation is outside the impact area of anything that may affect. We've basically designed it so this other person's house and mine are basically so geographically different and separated by about 150 kilometers. There's really scant likelihood that our houses will be affected. So he's just going to feed me and I'm just going to feed him based upon the food that's here. So basically personal care devices and stuff, that's, that's not a problem. You, you, you'd, it, it's funny how simple it is to put a bottle of shampoo, a couple of towels, extra toothpaste, toothbrush, um, hair comb and whatever into a bag with a sweatsuit, with an old beat up sweatsuit and a pair of comfy shoes and a jacket that everybody loves and throw it in a bag and throw it in the front of the garage and you grab and go. It's not hard. Just think through it. I got an episode on it. Go listen to that. The last lesson that you have from, and this is a reality that nobody wants to deal with, is financial, right? Your job is likely gone. Look at that earthquake. If you were a mechanic, your mechanic shop is probably not there anymore. If you were a carpenter, if you work for a construction company, it, it, it doesn't matter. You're, you've got to realize that not only your house may be damaged, but your livelihood may be gone. Like you're done. Like there's no more paychecks and there's no more work for you in that line of business because it's just been devastated. The owner may be rebuilding, but trust me, the business owner's not going to pay you for nine months while they're rebuilding their facility to reopen. That gap, that's your responsibility to be able to pay your bills as soon as your income stops right? The second your income ceases for whatever reason, and I've used the pandemic as a prime example in the past, because if you think about it, you had a whole bunch of really intelligent, strong, capable workers doing wonderful work for strong, healthy companies, and they all got fired because of a pandemic. They all got laid off. What was your plan when that happens, right? What is your plan when you get fired? That's your job to have that plan. It's your job to know what you're going to pivot to, what training you need, and how to do that. And we're going to have that detailed in an upcoming episode as to how to design that step-by-step, exactly what you have to do in your financial pivot plan. But if your job is likely gone, what will you pivot to? How will you reset and restart if necessary? That's your job to figure out. It's not the government's job. It's not the government's job to take care of all of this for you. I mean, I don't care what political stripe you are. Look at any government around the world, and they have trouble delivering the most basic of services that governments are expected to do, and they do so for an incredibly high price tag. And yet you're going to sit back on your couch and think that this thing called government is going to come flying in and rescue you, is going to pay your bills and take care of you. Um. Here at Inside My Canoe Head, we try to defeat that fallacy with logic and facts and tell you that, no, if you want to be successful on the preparedness side, there is but one question to ask yourself. Who is responsible for your outcomes? And the answer can only be you. It is up to you to plan, prepare in times like this, a period of calm and peace. So hopefully these uh, six lessons that we went through and a couple of realities related to the earthquake in Syria and Turkey um, can show you how chaos reigns, how catastrophic events can so momentarily and in a second of time 
dramatically change the course of your lives and where your future is and understanding that it's up to you to be ready for that from the perspective of having the basic requirements and the basic plan set up so that you stay one step ahead of the general population and that you're not relying on state capacity and the government to come rescue you. So thank you uh, for listening to this uh, podcast episode and Inside My Canoe Head. If you want to, and I strongly encourage everybody to donate to the effort, I am an immense lifelong fan of the work of the Red Cross. There are a lot of great agencies out there that do wonderful work. Go to the official Red Cross website. Don't take any links from anybody else, including your government or a company. Um, Because remember, at the checkout, when the grocery store asks you to donate $10 to the Syrian relief effort, they donate it and then they take the tax right off. So as an individual, go directly to the redcross.ca, redcross.com, whatever the official Red Cross uh, website is in your area and donate cash, not things. Legit, uh, you know, I spent 20 years in logistics. Don't give them physical items. Never give physical items in disaster response. Never, ever, period. No matter how well-intentioned you are, don't send blankets and mittens and hats. Send cash. The reason being is the Red Cross can leverage that to a much greater degree. They can buy locally where the logistics exist. If you buy a whole bunch of crap, a whole bunch of well-intentioned crap, for humanitarian relief and you drop it off in Canada, somebody has got to get it to the other side of the world. And by then it just ends up uh, in the trash heap. So thank you once again for listening to this episode. Uh, Keep your comments coming. Sign up for our newsletters. Follow us on socials. Have yourself a great and incredible weekend. Take care.